Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. If you've been listening in the last two weeks, let me just say this is actually me live. <laughs> we had some great guests the last couple of weeks. I hope you enjoyed that. I, I sure enjoyed uh, when we recorded the shows. Just It's just always fun to visit with people that are incredibly knowledgeable and, you know, and able to provide insight into a lot of things. Uh, so today we're live. We're a call-in show. So, uh, let's see. The phone number is 979 845 5689-845-5689. Or you can email me, as a lot of people have been doing while I've been gone. Uh, that is gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Uh, I am looking here through some uh, old emails, and let's just... Um, Let's just go through some of these, and, and we'll go ahead and get started that way. Uh, so let's see. Susan had emailed about uh, persimmons and uh, talking about stringent varieties and things like that. Um, there are, yeah, and she's pointing out the astringents and non-astringent types, and that, that is certainly true. I'm not sure what I said on the air, but um, there are both types. Uh, the non-astringent types, you can eat them when they are hard uh, still, but they need to reach the, the ripen stage, but they don't turn all fully mushy uh, quite like the astringent types do. The non-astringent, eaten when they're firm, don't have that astringency. Uh, the astringent types get very soft. As I like to describe it as with their skin around them. It's almost like a bag full of jelly. Uh, very, very good. I find the astringent types, uh, if you can let them get fully ripe and lose that astringency, they, I think, are the better tasting of the groups, but both are very good. So there's not a, uh, you know, one that's clearly better than the other. They each have their their attributes. But if for those of you around here, if you haven't planted a, a persimmon, that's a that's a plant that ought to be planted more. Now, if you don't care for them, well, of course. But I find them to be really good to eat and also very good for a holiday baking. If you want to make a, you know, like people typically in the holiday time make a banana bread or, or something like pumpkin bread or something along those lines. Well, persimmon bread is delicious. It's absolutely delicious. And conveniently, they ripen about the time you'd want to be doing that. So the other thing about a, a persimmon I like, other things about persimmons I like, let's see, is first of all, they um, they ripen at a time of the year when a lot of, well, there's not much fruit ripening at that time of the year. We're getting some, oh, some citrus in for some types of citrus in areas where they can grow that. Uh, but they also are very ornamental. The leaves, first of all, the leaves when they fall in the fall, they turn a beautiful yellow and orange and even kind of a reddish colors. And I just think they're really attractive. Then after they fall, they leave those orange fruits behind. And it looks like a, I don't know, a, um, Halloween ornaments, if you would, on, on a tree. Uh, there's big orange fruit hanging on there. And so I just think it, oh, one other thing about persimmons, they're very, um, 
easy to grow organically. So if you don't like spraying your fruit trees, persimmon's a good one. Now they get some leaf spots, but that's at the end of the season and the leaves are falling off anyway. It's not worth worrying about. So they, they just don't have a lot of pests. There are always a few pests of pretty much anything, but uh, nothing you need to spray for by and large. So uh, another reason to, to plant a persimmon if you, if you haven't done that before. Uh, some some uh, questions from Jimmy uh, on the air. Uh, Jimmy's going to be putting in some raised beds of seasonal vegetables. And the question was, what are my thoughts on wood versus metal, considering our brutal hot, dry summers? And that's a good question. Here, everything has pros and cons, and so here, here you go. Uh, most types of wood are just going to rot out, and the money you spend on the bed is very soon lost. A lot of types of wood will warp so the beds don't look nice and they may even be uh, kind of curving. You know, the boards, instead of being flat on the end, sort of turn sort of C-shaped as they warp on the ends. And that's a problem uh, for beds. Uh, there are treated wood, which is the kind I would use if I was doing wood, unless you just want to spend a lot of money on redwood or some other kind of somewhat rot-resistant wood. Uh, the treated wood products, some people are concerned about those. The old treated uh, wood chemicals are not used anymore. There's new generations of treated of chemicals for treating wood that don't have some of the concerns of the old CCA treated wood that we used to have. But some people don't care. It's like treated. I don't want it. It's a vegetable garden. I'm going to eat stuff. I don't want that. Or maybe I don't want the kids playing and touching it and sitting on it and all that kind of stuff. So I understand that. That's fine. It's your garden. Do what you want. But uh, treated wood would be the wood way to go. Uh, it is a pretty decent initial expense, but it does last a pretty long time. Anytime metal touches soil, you're going to have issues with decay. And there are different degrees of treating or types of treating that may last longer or less long compared to uh, other types. But that would be the treated wood end. Now the metal bed end, uh, there are a lot of types of metal beds. You see in some really high-end uh, properties, they'll go in with a very uh, thick sheets of metal that they allow to rust, and it creates a really a beautiful patina on the, the wood and the, or the beds, the metal beds, uh, that a lot of people find attractive. I, I now, I think if I were to pick one kind of metal bed, I like the new types that are out uh, in the market. Uh, an example of one of those would be um, Vego Beds, V-E-G-O. Vego is a company out of Houston, and it was uh, probably, I think, one of the original, if not the original metal bed uh, here in the United States. There was some overseas and a little ahead of that, but in the United States. Now, they've they do a the equivalent of like what you would think of as galvanized, like galvanized tin. They they do something like that to the metal. It's not galvanization technically, uh, but that process was um, uh, tested, and A and M has a, a materials testing facility and and shown to be very very effective uh, in coating the metal so it doesn't rust or corrode. Then they throw paint on there that is a USDA certified paint. Uh, you can get them in different colors, which is kind of nice. They're all earth tones, green and and brown and that sort of thing. Uh, in different heights, they are corrugated like tin, but they're much stronger, much thicker. 
and then they have a little thing you put over the top so you don't cut yourself. And they last longer than treated wood, much longer than treated wood. So I think they're more attractive. Uh, I think they're much easier to put together. Uh, you don't need a pickup truck to haul, you know, haul things home. They are modular. So you basically screw the panels together. It's very simple. You can make them long and oval. You can make a big fat square bed. You can make a C-shaped bed. You get the idea. Uh, and I think those are good. They're also, because, because you have a thin metal there that's painted, number one, it doesn't get hot. It, I mean, anything in the summer gets hot. The soil gets hot. But in general, it's, you know, people think of metal as getting super, super hot. Well, these don't compared to like the uh, rusty iron I was just talking about. Uh, and they last and last. And they, they're, because they're thin, they don't take up a lot of space. Now, I've made beds before out of cinder blocks. And that is a quick, easy way to make a bed. I mean, if you've ever played with a Lego, then you know how to make a cinder block bed. They're very simple. Uh, you can pick up each block, set it down, get them level. That's the trick on those, is getting them all straight and level. Uh, but uh, that works really well, and it lasts forever. The negative of those is each cinder block is 8 inches wide. So if you've got a bed surrounded by cinder blocks, you know, left to right or up and down that you've got, uh, what, 16 inches of garden area that is not in a walkway or a bed. The plus of those is you can put a little capstone on them, a little two-inch block, and sit down on the edges, and it, it's a nice place to sit and rest when you're, you know, doing work. You're not just bending over. Um, so that's a plus for them. Uh, another negative, they're not very pretty. I mean, you know, cinder block is a cinder block. You can paint it. You can. I've I've tried staining them with iron sulfate. You know, anytime you get iron on concrete and it gets wet, you get those rust stains. You've probably seen those before. Uh, so I've I've used that to the advantage of staining them. But I don't know. That's that's not worth it, and it's not that great anyway. So those are some options. I guess overall, if I were putting in a brand new garden, and I currently have a. Um, uh, treated wood garden. That's what I put in. That's before I discovered these new Vego beds. Uh, and uh, I just like them. I like the fact that they're here in Texas and just down the street in Houston. And uh, uh, they work really well. You can get them at different heights, so you don't have to stoop over so far to get down to the garden beds. Uh, and it's just, it's easy. So that would probably be the way I'd go. But again, I gave you a bunch of options there. You can go with whatever direction you want. Everybody's got their own opinions and desires and aesthetic preferences and so on. Uh, but that's the deal. The one thing I will say about all of these is when you put on put a box on the ground of any of these materials that is stocked and you fill it full of a quality growing mix, you have a very productive garden that's confined. Uh, it's easy to work around. I mean, if it were out in your lawn, you could even weed it around the sides of it and so on. Uh, but uh, I, I just think that's the way to go. You can drop a box like that on the concrete driveway or asphalt parking lot and grow stuff if it's high enough. It needs to be at least 16 inches high, a little, little taller is a little better. Uh, but yeah, it, these drop a box on the ground beds is just essentially a large container sitting on the ground, which that's what we do with pots on the patio, right? We set a container on the, on the ground. And uh, they work really well. Very productive. It's neat. It's easy. And when you're done, if for some reason you move and want to take your beds, or 
I don't know, you change your mind, you don't want a garden anymore. Uh, it's easy to get them out of there and just smooth things out and, and go on with something else. So those are probably more thoughts, Jimmy, than you were, you were asking about, about the beds, but hope that helps. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. Uh, email, you can reach me at gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Uh, Jimmy also asked about shade cloth uh, over the garden, possibly leaving it up all year. You absolutely can do that. I wouldn't go over about a 50% shade unless you were trying to grow a true shade-loving plant. Uh, but maybe if I were doing it, depending on the orientation of your garden, east, west, west, north, south, I probably would do it so that about midday, maybe a little after midday, uh, it moves into shade with the shade cloth. Now you can leave it over the whole thing. If you put too much shade on, you're going to affect productivity on rooting crops and fruiting crops. So that would be carrots and tomatoes as two examples of those two categories. Uh, I, I think shade cloth is not a bad idea. It doesn't make the air temperature cooler necessarily, but it does uh, avoid excessive heating of the soil and the plant surfaces. And that is a challenge. And if I remember, I'm going to come back and talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but yeah, shade cloth could be do it. Just don't don't overdo the density of the shade. That that would be my only suggestion on that. I don't see a lot of people doing that uh, because it is a, a trade-off. You're trading off trying to carry a crop a little further, avoid sunburn on some things, uh, with uh, getting good sunlight and and better carbohydrate production and productivity. Uh, Jimmy also has some knockout rose bushes that are kind of leggy and and wants to know can you cut them back. Yes, you can. You can cut. I've seen knockouts cut back over 50%. Now, that's not a good all-the-time practice, but they will sprout back out like crazy and come right back out again. We had some at the extension office before we moved, and they, they were getting a little too tall. Uh, knockout, you see them, they're smaller, but they can get five, six feet tall easy, maybe a little higher. And so we would cut them way back and then let them come out, and as they come out, shear them again. Uh, and each time you shear or cut back, what was one shoot becomes two or three. And so you end up with a denser bush and you end up with more terminals, two or three shoots. The ends of the shoots are where the roses are. So the more, just think of your fingers as, you know, like turn your hand upside down and, or, or point your fingers up. Those are all the shoots coming out of your rose bush and at the end of each finger is a rose. So the more fingers sticking up in the air and the sun, the more rose terminals that you have and more roses. So that's just something to do. I would do that in the winter time. Uh, I typically will prune roses back, especially these shrub types. A lot of different kinds of roses and you know, hybrid teas would be a different kind of pruning. But the shrub types, I'll prune them back pretty heavily in the springtime. And then I would, uh, or excuse me, the wintertime. And then I would shear them back after the big spring bloom which typically occurs in about April. You know, you're getting kind of some of your best show of the spring. Uh, shear them back a little bit, and then that will cause uh, them to regrow. Throw a little fertilizer down, water it in, scratch it in the soil surface, and you get another good set of blooms carrying you on. And then at the end of summer, I would do another shearing because October is a great rose show month. I mean, they really love that cooling weather and they do real well in October. So those shearings in April, at the well, after the April show and then in, at the end of summer would be like uh, maybe a 
25% shearing back, um, not, not so severe as the winter. But those are some tips for that. And in fact, I was visiting with the new owners of the Antique Rose Emporium, and uh, boy, I'm so excited that, that uh, some good folks have purchased that. It's a great it's a great fun place to go out and hang out and just to see the place is great. But they're, of course, they have the unbelievable rose selection and perennials and stuff. But I was visiting with them about some of the roses they have and some of the plans they have going forward and things. And uh, just talking about knockouts just reminded me of that. And I'm just, again, glad that uh, that business is still going strong with, with real good plans uh, going forward. Uh, let's see, I had a question. Uh, well, I had a comment from Syed. Uh, Syed had some uh, nice, beautiful trees and shrubs out in the wild around the property. And uh, just watching this summer just beat the heck out of our plants. Uh, the concern is, or am I going to lose trees and other things? And so that beautiful view kind of isn't the same in future years. And the answer is probably some, but probably not too much, at least if it will quit doing what it's doing now, cool off and rain, which surely we got to get some <laughs> sometime soon. But looking around town, I'm seeing a lot of trees and shrubs that are being allowed to turn brown. Now on a, on a, a large property, like uh, Syed was writing about, a uh, larger property, the you can't run a hose out to every tree out there in the woods. And so you kind of have to let nature do what nature's going to do. If you can get to a tree or two that's large and you want to try to just rescue it a little bit, watering the entire area underneath the branch spread of the tree with a very good deep soaking, and that would require at least an inch of water and maybe a little more. Uh, so if you have a sprinkler system around it, turn it on, run it until it's about to run off the surface, let it go off for 45 minutes, turn it on again until it's going to run off, go off for 45 minutes. And that's called cycle and soak. It's what we do with our lawns, and it's the right way to water a lawn. Uh, if you are squirting your lawn three or four times a week, you are way miswatering. You're wasting water. You're not doing the grass the good it could, and it certainly costs money. And every time you water with our high-sodium, high-bicarbonates water, it's affecting uh, the soil quality and in terms of like sodium content. Sodium makes a clay very tight and poorly drained internally. And so the more you water, the more sodium you're putting in the soil. Uh, and so that's uh, another issue then that we have to deal with. But a good soaking on an infrequent basis is the way to go. So what are, what's going to happen to plants? Well, some plants have already died. Um, the post oaks seem to be one of the most persnickety when it comes to not getting happy about the things we do. They don't like you to put a lawn around them. They don't like you to put a flower bed around them. They don't like you to suddenly be watering them too much. Um, and it, But again, the rescue treatment is, it is helpful. By the way, those rescue waterings of trees, you don't need to do that every week. I mean, you can do that every two weeks or even a little longer if need be. You're just trying to get in there and keep it from going into even more severe stress. Trees are resilient. I mean, think about it. They've been living out there in the woods long before we moved in, started putting neighborhoods around them. So all we're trying to do is help with this, I would say unusual, I hope it's unusual, uh, heat and drought that we're having this year. We did it last year as well. Um, so that's the story. I, if you've got crepe myrtles and things, they're very tough. But give them just a little bit of a rescue soaking there uh, occasionally 
just to kind of keep them in their best shape. You know, our crepes got hit really hard last December by the early freeze that they weren't ready for. A lot of other plants were ready, but for some reason the crepe myrtles weren't. And that's why you see crepes that are dead are re-sprouting from the base, uh, crepes that have dead branches in them, but then a few living branches, so it's kind of an ugly mess. Uh, but that was a December freeze, so let's quit adding insult to injury and just occasionally uh, give them a little soaking to try to help them through. That would be that would be really helpful. Uh, let's see, I had another question uh, come in from Tommy, and uh, Tommy has a picture of a, of a uh, young uh, Mexican plum tree. It's only been in the ground a couple of years or so, and there's a little sap coming out of the bottom, and there are a number of things that can cause sap to come out of the bottom of a stone fruit and a stone fruit uh, in, are the fruits that have that pit inside so peaches plums apricot cherries which we don't grow here um, those are all stone fruit and so when you see sap coming out down at the base it could be different things it could be a wound a physical wound uh, the lawnmower and the weed eater they are public enemy number one when it comes to fruit trees all tree trunks at the base, especially when the tree's young, because the bark is thin. And when you damage that, you get large wounds. Often canker follows with them, and it's just a mess. So it ought to be, it ought to be a horticultural law in Texas that if you ever plant any kind of a tree, you have to have at least a three-foot in all directions mulched area around it. And if you ask the tree, it would say 30 feet in all directions. But uh, they don't like grass, but at least keep the lawnmower and weed eater away. So the sap could be a wound. It could be due to certain kinds of cankers, uh, tissues inside the, the living bark can be infected with disease that we typically would refer to as a canker type disease. Uh, that could be that, or it could be an insect. There are a couple of borers that attack peaches and plums, and and though nectarines is the same as a peach essentially. Uh, those, you know, if the tree's stressed, it may be more prone to them, but even with a healthy tree, they can move in. There's one that just attacks at the base of the trunk. That's a peach tree borer. And then there's one called lesser peach tree borer, which attacks not down at the base of the trunk, but up in the branches. And you see little globs of sap everywhere. So either an insect or a disease, how do you tell the difference? Take a knife, scrape back behind that little bit of sap. If you just see brown uh bark tissues beneath the surface instead of kind of a, a light green or creamy color. It's more pecan brown. That would be more of pointing toward a disease. And if you see a little hole, a tunnel, well, there's your borer insect. So those are some things to, to think about. Uh, I would just do whatever you can do to get the tree as healthy as you can. So that would include watering to avoid drought stresses. Uh, that would include occasionally fertilizing. I wouldn't fertilize right now, but in the spring you could, uh, just to in improve vigor a little bit. You don't want to overdo it. We're not trying to turn them into just a super fast-growing plant. Uh, but the healthier the plant is, the more vigorous the plant is and healthy, the faster it can close over wounds, whether it's a canker wound or whether it's a, an old canker wound that's now trying to heal or if it's an uh, insect uh, damage. And so, yeah, good health is important. Uh, plants and people have many similarities. And one of them is when we are weak and poorly, and, uh, have poor nutrition and so on, we're more prone to getting sick. 
and uh, we can also go the other way where we eat too much and the food ain't great quality and uh, that also can lead to health problems in life right well our plants are somewhat similar to that uh, so uh, adequate food quality food good balance of nutrients adequate supply of moisture to the roots all of that gives the tree every chance it has to stay healthy and that's the goal because a lot of the things that can take a tree down we don't have a good spray for uh, so for example hypoxylin canker and that one is coming around here it, it's already here everywhere and each year we see trees die to it but this stressful summer I'm convinced is gonna set a lot of oaks up it attacks a couple of other species but primarily we see it here on oaks a lot of oaks set them up for hypoxylin canker so later the bark falls off, you see olive drab, dusty underneath, maybe it turns black, maybe it turns silvery colored. That's all stages in the hypoxylin canker and um, yeah, there's not a spray for that at all. The The way to control hypoxylin canker is to not let your tree be stressed. And so that, just something to think about. It, it's a principle, but it, if you think that way, it kind of helps you in taking care of your plants. Uh, for most gardeners, non-gardeners, or new to gardening or whatever, the mindset is, well, when there's an insect or a disease, I spray it, and that's how I, that's how I control things. But we need to take it one step back from that and see if we can avoid spraying by avoiding the problem by keeping our plants healthy. And that's, that's really, really important because to just depend on a pesticide treadmill to get your plants through month after month, year after year, uh, that is... That, that doesn't make sense and it's not as effective as maintaining good quality health and then when you need to spray for something we can spray for something but uh, we avoid a lot of those problems by doing that well I'm doing a monologue here uh, let's give out the phone number it's 845-5689 I don't mind keeping talk keeping on talking but it's more interesting when we have your questions 845-5689 I realize right now uh, that just the thought of gardening and going outside in a hundred plus degree heat uh, is uh, let's just say people's enthusiasm is waning but remember fall is coming it is coming and now is an important time to be doing things out there in the garden that are done pre to prepare for fall. For example, fall's the best planting season of the year for trees, shrubs, woody vines, and perennials and herbs, most herbs. Uh, and it's, it's the time, best time to do that. So now would be the time to prepare the soil, get the beds ready, because it won't be long, probably a month and a half or so before I would say it's the best time to start planting all those things. So prepare now. If you wanted to have a crop of yellow squash or zucchini squash or cucumbers uh, or green beans in the fall garden, plant them now because they will then ripen when the temperatures cool off in the fall. Uh, green beans uh, probably going to ripen about 50 days, 60 days down the line, depending on the variety. And uh, so, yeah, you need to get them in now if you want to have that harvest. If you've got peppers, hang on to them. Fertilize them and water them and get them, get them growing because they will produce their best crop of the year in the fall. A big, strong pepper plant that's been carried over from spring will really be productive in the fall. I've got some that I have allowed to stress. Don't tell anybody. Uh, and they're not doing really well. But 
uh, I just start watering them again. They're perking up, and I see the little buds. They just have been aborting them all these last couple of months because, uh, well, cobbler's kids go barefoot. Uh, but we're going to get them back in shape here, and it will be a wonderful fall harvest. Well, let's go to the phones. The number is 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Elizabeth. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Skip. How are you? Well, I'm thank well. You. Thank you. Can you tell me? Um, I have a bit of bruised roses, um, obviously not looking their best. Okay. Can I fertilize them now, and should I cut them back a little bit? They're not dead, but they you know, they're not full of leaves, that's yeah. for sure. I, I, would, I would wait a little bit if they're stressed especially. Now, if they're in good shape, uh, a rose, you could shear it in the next week or two. It would be fine. I might wait a little bit into early September um, just to be to give them a chance maybe to, or to give you a chance to water them and get them perked up. If they're in really stressed state and you prune them, that, that's not a great thing, pruning uh, would be invigorating, but if the plant's barely alive, then then that's not helping. Uh, but when you do prune them back, shear them back, uh, sprinkle some fertilizer. I use lawn fertilizer for my roses because uh, it has good nitrogen levels for vigor. And uh, scratch it in the soil, water it in, and, and then they'll take off for you. But in the meantime, let's get okay. them in better health. Okay, so hold up. So do the fertilizer when I prune them, but yeah. give it a Give it a little more time. Yeah. Okay. Prune, fertilize, water it in, mulch it, mulch it, uh, and and uh, get that vigor going. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Will Thank do. you for the call, uh -huh. Elizabeth. Appreciate that. Yeah. Our number is eight four five five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine. Colleen emails about uh, what's the appropriate treatment for crepe myrtle scale at this time of the year. Uh, there's really not a great. Um, this is not really a great time to treat for crepe myrtle scale. Uh, the crepe myrtle scale is a, is a problematic pest. Number one, it, it makes things ugly by putting out honeydew that creates black sooty mold and, and so on. It has natural enemies, and these natural enemies in time can help keep it in check. But when we spray, we definitely kill the natural enemies and the crepe myrtle scale then is able to proliferate. Even though the spray may help a little bit, there's not a silver bullet for a crepe myrtle scale. The systemics that we use, it, that's an insecticide. You mix in water, pour on the soil, and drench the roots, and it's taken up into the plumbing of the plant on the crepe myrtle. So when the scale is sucking sap out, it is getting the poison, and it, it kills that way. That also goes to the blooms, and uh, so bees are there. In fact, one of the number one bee plants of summer is crepe myrtle pollen, at least in, a, in, in town it would be. And uh, so we really don't want to use those uh, um, uh, imidacloprid, dinotefran, those, those systemics, um, when we have crepe myrtles that are blooming. Uh, I know we're kind of hitting the time of year when they're not as active. I've not seen any research reports, Colleen, about treating this late. I guess one case could be made that a systemic now is, you know, if they're not blooms on the plant, well, that might be a good time. Uh, what I would suggest most people do is, um, and this is more than I know a lot of people are going to want to do, but anyway, get some double-sided tape, sticky tape that's sticky on both sides, and you put it in the spring, I would put it out probably in March, uh, you wrap it, just one little band 
around branches near where scale is. And check that tape every few days and little baby scales, you'll see them start to crawl and they get stuck on the tape. That's your cue to go out with a contact type insecticide and hit the tree, get as good a coverage as you can with the spray uh, and kill all those crawlers. They're very susceptible. We can kill those easy. Once the, the crawlers hunker down, they create that uh, crusty covering that protects the scale, those kind of insecticides won't get to it. Uh, but that would be a time when you could go out and do that kind of thing and yellow sticky tape tells you when. I could tell you to do it in May or give you some month to do it, but every year is different. So it, it's not that difficult to just on a few branches just put that little sticky tape on and watch it and that it exactly for that year tells you, okay, the scale are active now, it's time to, to do something about it. I have some on my crepe myrtles and I haven't treated it. I was going to do it and then it's with the blooms and what I just said I decided not to. But there, it's not staying too bad. I think I've got some good help from some beneficials on that. Our phone number is 845-5689. 845-5689. Give us a call and we will visit about whatever you are interested in. Uh, let's see, Shadell asked about, uh, they have a, uh, someone in their family who's interested in growing ginger. And they were told you could put ginger root in water, and, uh, and it, when they did it, rotted and grew mold. So here's what you do. If you want to grow ginger, the, the edible, you know, ginger, the little tan uh, rhizomes you see in the grocery store, uh, take that and just plant it into a very rich composty soil. I will typically do it under the eaves of the house because ginger does not want direct, that kind of ginger does not want direct sun on it. But it, you've got to keep it well mulched and moist and what you plant will multiply. The new rhizome growths will come out in a lot of different directions. And so at the end of the year you'll, you'll have a little more ginger ginger than you planted. No need to put, I don't know what, why they would say put it in water, but uh, just a little side note, maybe soapbox, maybe gripe session. When you see stuff on social media, I and mean, that would I would even throw uh, YouTube in there. Anybody can put something up on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or whatever. That I mean, it's right. And a lot of stuff. In fact, over half the stuff I see. That's just a wild guess. Um, is just wrong. It may be right in a different location or a different time of the year or something, but usually it's based on a truth, but it's it's a falsehood, you know, because it's applied in a way that doesn't work. No need to put ginger in water to make it root or anything like that. Just plant it in the ground. Uh, it will, it's not cold hardy, so in the winter if you mulch it really thick, it will survive over winter at the soil surface. Uh, but don't leave it exposed or, or the cold will get it. Let's go back to the phones, 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Pat. Hello, Pat. Hi, Skip. Um, I have a question for you about the Texas Tree Conference. Okay. I heard about it on your program a few weeks ago, and I wondered if it's appropriate for a layperson. It is. Uh, you're talking about a fruit tree conference specifically, and uh, that was Dr. Hartman uh, that was on. Um, well, no, it was the the lady, Morgan. Oh, oh, oh! You're, oh, yes. The, is this the one up in Waco? I yes. think. Yes. yes. Okay. I'm yes. sorry. Yeah, we're also having a fruit tree conference over in, in uh, the 
Central Texas area. Well, that's uh, that, exciting, that, too. That's coming up. Yeah, that one, I mean, they're not going to turn you away. A lot of the topics are a little more technical, gotcha. but but you definitely could go. If, I mean, if you really have an interest, I would go online, look at the lineup and what the topics are, and if it's of interest to you, yeah, that would be okay. that would be good. Yeah. When's the Fruit Tree Conference? Oh, boy. Let's see. I'm going to have to find that, and I okay, will. I, I will. Uh, it's not. Uh, just, when you say Central Texas, uh, it usually is like in New Braunfels, I believe. Let oh, me let me pull good. this up, and if I if my computer will um, cooperate with me, I'll tell you in just a second here. Uh, Fruit Tree Conference, Texas Fruit Growers Association. Fruit Tree Conference 22. That's the wrong year. Let's try 23. Boom. There we go. All right. It is, oh, the, now I'm getting the one you ask about. <laughs> uh, where's the fruit? Uh, here we go. This is bad radio when I sit here surfing the web while I play ways and lessons. <laughs> All right. Uh, the 2023 Texas Fruit Tree Conference is October 18th through 20th. Okay. 18th through 20th, and it's in Fredericksburg. Oh, that would be Eight, mm -hmm. And so just search for Texas Fruit Tree Conference. Make sure and put 2023 in. Uh, there's going to be early on, there's some workshops, introduction to fruit growing. Again, that's geared toward toward commercial, but, I mean, you can learn stuff as a homeowner. Uh, Absolutely. They're going to have commercial uh, orchard tour. They're going to have uh, the regular conference and main programs. There'll even be a reception with, with a taste of Texas fruit. And uh, so, yeah. I'll give it a shot. Good information. If you go on the Aggie Horticulture website, that's aggie-horticulture.tamu.edu, you can find out more information there as well. Thank you, Skip. Appreciate it. All right. It. Thanks for okay. call, Pat. All right. Pat, I appreciate that. Yes, all these activities and stuff. It's always good to have learning opportunities. You know, I, I've been doing horticulture professionally for 34 years, and... Uh, unprofessionally for longer than that. I grew up with, we had fruit trees and vegetable gardens and things. Uh, and every, almost every day, I learned something. I mean, really, if you're out there looking, you are going to learn something. And it, the more you learn, the better you get. Sometimes things you used to th know turn out to, to uh, have changed. And so uh, staying up to date is important. I wish I could remember. Was it? It was somebody like um, Will Rogers or Mark Twain or somebody said, uh, "It's not what I know. It's not what I don't know that concerns me. It's what I know that ain't so." And I find that to be true a lot. Sometimes I'll run into the the fact that what I think I know just yeah, that's not true. That's not true. Always good to be learning. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I want to talk about some other email things. Uh, John had emailed about acorns a while back. We we kind of talked about that on the air. But uh, th there's acorns tend to to be produced depending on the kind of oak, and maybe every other year or, or on some sort of schedule like that. But they can be affected by the health of the plant too. And interestingly enough, with fruiting plants, and I'm including plants that produce nuts in that. Uh, as a plant gets weak, sometimes it will put on a heavy set of fruit 
Uh, and it's almost like a keep the species alive effort. You know, I'm about to die here, so I'm going to create as much seed as I can so the species goes on. Uh, and so we, we see that effect sometimes with a healthy crop. But uh, whenever a plant puts its carbohydrates into a late season crop, it is not able to put as much carbohydrates into setting fruit buds for the following year. So pecans, for example, I'll use them as an example. Uh, it really works well with pecans. Uh, so you've got pecans that are, you know, coming off in, what, October, sometime like that. And so all those carbohydrates that went into the kernels aren't producing uh, pecan buds for next year. And so you get a heavy crop this year, next year's a light crop. We call that alternate bearing. And I would think anything probably, I've never heard that attributed to acorns, but it probably is too, uh, because that is a carbohydrate sink for that, for the oak tree. Uh, so if you have a light year one year, you have a really good fruit or not set the following year. And that's just a, one of those principles of, of horticulture that's, that's out there. Let's uh, go to the phones again, 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Kyle. Hello, Kyle. Hello, Skip. Uh, is the heat getting to you like it is to me? Uh, it's about to drive me crazy. <laughs> well, they say when you get older, you're more susceptible, so I basically don't go out except I do triage in my garden. Okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> there you go. It's sad. Okay, here's the question. Once I was told by a horticulturalist that the thing that, I don't know, thwarts or stifles most of our plants isn't only the heat in the day, but that it never cools off at night. That's right. So you can confirm that probably. Yes. But here's my specific question. I am tempted when I see wilting leaves to water almost every day. Mm-hmm. But in this heat, with no cool nights, is it possible I could overwater? That it's not so much the plant is dry, but it's just the heat is getting it. Well, even if it's just that the plant is dry, you can overwater, yes. And in the heat of summer, overwatering is more deadly than underwatering. And here's, here's why. Uh, roots need oxygen to survive. They respire underground. They, they can't use the word breathe, but think of it that way. You know, mm -hmm. we, we breathe in and breathe out. We take in carbon dioxide, we take in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. For the most part, plants are taking in carbon dioxide and producing oxygen, but there's a period of time where in, in the day-night cycle where they're taking in oxygen like we do and producing a little carbon dioxide. Now, the net is they produce more oxygen, but when you waterlog a root system and it shuts down, it's as if you just dug that plant off or cut it off at the ground, essentially, and it will die fast when the temperatures are 100 degrees and the demands are through the roof because they cannot get water. Drought is a slow stress, eventually ending in death, but overwatering is fast. Now, the people talk about, well, how long do I water? How much water do I put on? And, and all that. What? How often do I water? The answer is, how wet is the soil? If the soil is moist, that's good. If the soil is soggy wet, that's not good. Now, initially when you water, it may be wet, but it needs to dry out. And so a little bit at least. So 
I would say that on trees, you know, for a brand new tree that just got planted a couple of months ago, you're watering it almost every day in a real small amount to just wet that root cylinder that went in the ground. If it's an established tree, the well-established tree, you shouldn't be watering it even weekly. It ought to be able to survive with less than weekly watering, even in this heat. But uh, the volume of soil you wet has an effect because that's the only area that roots can get water from. And the uh, depth that you wet, and a lot of those things are important. But if I hear, like every other day, water in a tree, that unless it's just a new plant that has a limited root system, don't do that. Yeah, my concern isn't so much the trees as, you know, the smaller things. I have a bougainvillea that normally loves heat and sun, mm -hmm. but it's in a terracotta pot okay. that I'm sure is porous enough that water moisture is escaping. And okay. it wilts every day if I don't water it. The leaves, I mean. Yeah, and if it's wilting, here's the thing to watch. It like uh, tomato plants do this, for example. You get toward the end of the day and they're wilting and you feel the soil and it's moist three inches down. So, But it, what's happening is they can't pump water fast enough. Even though it's there in the soil, the plant mm -hmm. wilts. But if you come back out at 7 or 8 p.m. and look at it, it's perked back up again because it's able to catch up. So that kind of situation doesn't need additional okay. watering. Okay. Uh, and I would just watch for that. Now, if it stays wilted, yes, that's soil that it doesn't have enough water in the soil and you need to add extra. Well, I'll make sure I'm checking it later in the day then. Yes. I, I Or in the evening. Make it the evening because it needs time to catch up. And right now, what is it, 100 degrees at 8 o'clock at night? <laughs> I mean, just about, right? And, yeah. And so that's just, yeah, that's just brutal. We just need to get over the this needs to go away. This this is not, it's too much, too long. Well, I think we're all going to have to go to native plants. I'm not so sure that it's going to go away. Well, native plants can be helpful, but, you know, our post oaks out in the woods are native, and they are dying out there, too. So even native plants, uh, you know, can hit situations mm -hmm. where they struggle. But uh, the horticulture you, you heard from that said, talked about nighttime temps, they're right. It is. It's mm -hmm. a it's a daytime temp and it's a nighttime temp. And when it's too hot and the water's limited, plants close their little openings in the leaves called stomates. And the stomate has to be open for gas exchange so that the factories and the leaves that are making carbohydrates and all that so that they can run. And under excessive heat and under uh, drought conditions, that doesn't happen. And so the plant factories are shutting down and that's a bad problem for the plant. Gotcha. Well, thanks for that detailed advice. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call, Kyle. You take care. Our phone number is 845-5689. If you're listening from outside the area, 979-845-5689. Uh, I am working on getting caught up on emails. It's probably going to take me another week or so to, to fully catch up. But if you've emailed me, I will get to your email uh, and answer it on the air. I'm unable to answer those in between shows. Uh, just because uh, when the show's over, I head out of here to my day job <laughs> and, and go back to work. Uh, and I'm just not able to, to get all these done. But you, I will get to them. We had an email from Chelsea about a tree. And this tree was apparently um, damaged, physically damaged. It could have been, you know, uh, any 
this kind of, you know, where you see just a tree and you see the wood inside, but the bark has been killed and it's this big area of just what we'll call naked interior wood. Uh, and, it, you know, vehicle damage can do things like that. Deer rubbing antlers on a small tree can do that. Uh, who knows what all did this one. But uh, the tree is a, a large trunk size and about half the way around the trunk, it's no bark. And so there's two things about this. Number one, if it's a small area, the tree can create callus that closes back over that area and protects the interior wood. If it's halfway around a tree that's older like this, it'll never close over. Uh, and it's it just too much, too far to go. And older trees, kind of like us, I keep comparing plants to people, uh, they just don't have the vigor uh, to, to respond like a younger tree might. Uh, and so what happens is the tree's living and it's okay, but now you've got the interior wood exposed to the elements and moisture and microbes start to rot that area. And now the structural integrity of the tree is weakened. And so I see in the photo a, a building nearby, looks like a home, uh, that in time will be endangered by this situation. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. I can't tell you how long it's going to take. A part of it depends on what kind of tree it is. Uh, you know, is it very rot um, resistant or is it very rot susceptible? Uh, but that is, oh, this is a cottonwood. Yeah, so it's going to rot fast in there. Uh, so there's really nothing you can do. It's just the damage has been done and the extent of it going halfway around the tree. Um, you don't have to run out and do something today, but uh, before long, you're probably going to have to take that tree out. And I know that is bad news. Anyone who has a big tree hates to, to lose it, and that is certainly understandable. Uh, and uh, because it's such a large tree, uh, it can get quite pricey to have it taken down. And boy, you better be careful to hire somebody who is uh, insured and has current provable insurance. Uh, you don't want to see the pickup truck go over the horizon in a cloud of dust as they are running away from the tree that just dropped on your house or car or whatever. Uh, you make sure that and check that uh, anytime you're hiring an arborist to do any kind of work like that that, that would be uh, potentially uh, very, uh, you know, very damaging to a car, a property, people, things like that. Well, let's see, our phone number 845-5689. We're kind of getting toward the end of the show here today, but uh, if we can help you with that, we'd be, be happy to do that uh, with any kind of questions that you might have. I'm kind of talking about things that I know people uh, are asking about now because, boy, we're getting a, a lot of calls, and it, it's almost all, why is my lawn dying? Why is my tree dying? Uh, and when w your water supply system goes into levels of restriction, even recommended cutting backs, uh, you know, where they say, hey, don't water every day, you know, or don't water during these hours, even if it's just a recommendation and there's not a water police showing up at your house, even with that, uh, you want to try to follow it because, I mean, this is putting a real strain on our watering systems. So what do we do? We give it a good soaking on an infrequent basis. That's it. Uh, if you follow, like, College Station water system, they have on the on their website, uh, there's information on when they recommend you do or don't water. And a lot of that is due to uh, water pressure. You know, if everybody turns on the water all at once, well, that that's tough to keep up with. Uh, uh, 
part of it is due to the temperature outside. If you're watering at 4 p.m. and the sun is baking down and it's 105 degrees, you're wasting a lot of water and you're going to lose a lot to runoff, for example. So we want to water when that isn't happening uh, with a good soaking. You know, it's a lot of our plants are resilient and they may look really bad. In fact, lawns, some lawns look almost dead, but yet when you give them some water, they, they manage to come back. So our goal is to try to save as much water as we can, but uh, to water enough to keep them alive. Because if something is a very valuable plant, meaning you paid a lot for it and you'll pay a lot to replace it, that was where I would focus the water. Uh, things that are annuals, even maybe some perennials, it, it's not the end of the world. But if it's a, a very valuable tree, for example, that that would be one that I would say would get the priority uh, when when um, when we're divvying out who gets and who doesn't uh, get the water. I want to head back to emails. I had a question come in from email on uh, what are the vegetables that you start planting now uh, and, and then in the fall, when, how do you know when to plant? And the question specifically was, can I plant tomatoes? And, and my answer on tomatoes would be no, not anymore. Uh, tomatoes take a good while to reach harvest. And once we get into the, well into the fall, the day length is shortening, the temperature is dropping, and the rate at which a plant would develop and mature fruit slows down more and more. So you hit a point where those green tomatoes just never ripen. And of course, with tomatoes, you can pick them and bring them inside, and the, more ma the larger or more mature ones uh, would go ahead and turn from green to, to the, to the reddish-orange color. Uh, but it's, it's really too late to plant tomatoes. But if you want to know on this kind of thing, I have a, a planting guide, and it's on the Brazos Master Gardener website. And you can go there, and it's free. It's a, it looks like a green checkerboard. And uh, basically what that, um, what that offers is all the vegetables that you would want to grow here, or almost all of them, and each month of the year, what do you plant? And you, here's what you do. You go to brazosmg.com, B-R-A-Z-O-S-M-G.com. And when you get there, you click on Central Texas Gardening, and you click on Edibles. Uh, you kind of, it makes sense as you're clicking through. And then you'll find this chart, the, the planting chart. And it's free to download. I mean, you can look at it online, or you can print you up a copy and put it on the refrigerator. Uh, and it tells you what to plant. And so what it'll tell you is we should be planting beans right now, for example. Uh, this is a great time to plant beans. We should be planting potatoes for the fall. Now, this isn't sweet potatoes. This is the new potatoes, the red potatoes, for example. Um, and because it's so hot, the typical way of planting potatoes where you cut a potato into pieces with a bud or two, or we call them eyes on each piece, that just rots in the soil at this time of year. And so we typically save the smaller potatoes uh, from the spring crop for our fall planting so we can plant them whole. But if you plant now, even though it's hot, uh, I would throw a little, um, I don't know, hay or leaf mulch or something over them when you plant just to keep the soil a little cooler. They'll come up and you will have time to reach harvest before we get a frost that kills that kills the tops of the plants. Uh, it's, it, we're getting to the end of the time when you'd want to get summer squash planted. Uh, and with all these vegetables, 
uh, the, the beans, the squash, the cucumbers, those kinds of things, I would make sure and use the fastest days to harvest spe or varieties or cultivars as you can. Uh, there are, I'll use tomatoes as an example. There are tomatoes that reach harvest in 60 days. There are tomatoes that, like some of the brandy wine, it may be 80 days that it takes. Well, 20 days, when you get into the cooling off period of fall, a brandy wine, especially now, you would never see a fruit, period, on it. So when we're planting green beans, when we're planting cucumbers, planting squashes, stuff that moves faster is a little bit better. Uh, that is, if you hope to see uh, a harvest from it. But go online, check this out. Uh, we, uh, when we get into September, I mean, everything breaks loose because we are, we're planting all the cool season vegetables. So if you want to grow your own broccoli from seed, maybe there's a variety that you want, you can plant it right now in a little seed cell inside, get it sprouted, get it out where it gets light, but not direct blazing hot sun and grow your transplant because about six weeks after you do the planting you're going to be putting it in the garden which as it turns out will be about the right time to put broccoli out there so even though it's blistering hot outside and discouraging fall is coming and now's the time to do the things so that when fall arrives and you want to be outside you've got a garden that's well on its way well thanks for listening to garden success we are here every thursday from 12 to 1 answer your gardening questions we are also available by podcast, so go to your podcast provider, look for Garden Success. If you are somewhere and you can listen on a computer but you can't get the radio signal, that's another way to listen to Garden Success. Just go to the KAMU-FM website, look for Garden Success, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.